Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today, though. Here's the question. Should you buy a dash cam for your vehicle? This is becoming more and more popular in vehicles. You see them all the time. You can buy them everywhere. A dash cam in your vehicle. A lot of people think, okay, if I get into an accident, especially the other guy's fault, I want the record on that dash cam. Got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to this first here from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. As the hits keep coming, a spike in the use and quality of dash cam footage is changing the way crashes are investigated. This alleged East Vancouver hit and run was followed by a brief pursuit and some fighting words. You just hit and ran me at a green light. You f***ing ran me at a green light. No, I didn't. You f***ing right you did. No, I didn't. After viewing the video, Vancouver police turned the file over to ICBC to determine who's at fault. What the video does is it clears up any misinterpretation of those events. Uh, we would just prefer that it's gathered safely and turned over to us in its entirety. Okay, yeah, the police want to see that dash cam footage here. Let's discuss it now with Kyla Lee. Kyla is a traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hey, Kyla, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You bet. So... Dash cams, are those becoming more popular? Are you seeing more and more of your clients have got dash cams in their vehicles? Oh, absolutely. It seems like uh, they're so cheap and they're so readily available that everybody wants to get one to try and show that, um, you know, they're in the right uh, in lots of situations. But that doesn't usually work out that way. Oh, really? Okay. So, let, so let's talk about that. Like, I think, what is the most common reason people get the dash cam? I think it's because they figure if I'm in an accident, right? I want to be able to prove my innocence. That's typically why people get them, correct? Yes. And most people who have dash cams tell me that they get it, especially because they're worried about ICBC saying something, or if they're in an accident, you know, the other party saying something that isn't true and being able to prove their case to ICBC. Right. Right. Okay. So, and is that usually the case? Like it, it can be helpful. I mean, if the other guy hits you and the other guy's at fault, I mean, that dash cam video could be crucial, right? In dealing with your sort of civil claim with ICDC, absolutely a dash cam can be helpful, but it has limited value in the sense that all ICDC is ultimately making a determination about these days is who's at fault for a collision, which really only impacts your future insurance rates and whether or not you uh, have to pay your deductible. So it's not as significant an issue as people think that it is. The problem with dash cams, from my perspective as a criminal lawyer, is that they're often used as evidence against people. When you're investigated for any type of criminal or or unlawful driving behavior, police will often seize the dash cam, take the footage off the dash cam, and then use it to prove that you were violating the law in your driving. Okay, so this is how it can backfire on, on someone, I guess. So give me an example there, Kyla, of where like an offense where a police might typically do that. So let's say they stop you on an offense and then they say, hey, I'm taking your dash cam. Can they do that? 
They can. Um, if wow. they're stopping you and investigating a criminal offense, they're entitled for um, incident to the arrest to seize any available evidence uh, that is related to the reason for the arrest. So if you're arrested for an impaired driving investigation or a dangerous driving investigation, I guarantee you the police are going to take your dash cam. They're going to get a warrant to get the footage off the dash cam. And then they're going to use that footage to try and show that you drove unlawfully. Even if it's not at the point that you were stopped, because your dash cam is recording your entire drive, it can also give them information about other unlawful driving behavior that you engaged in and strengthen the case against you. Whoa, whoa. So they can go backwards in time, like take a look at all the footage on the dash cam and say, hey, we saw you doing some other dangerous stuff here. Yeah, for, for example, oh. if 10 minutes before you got pulled over by the police officer, you were swerving a little bit, the dash cam can be used to show that you're driving in a manner consistent with impairment. Okay, okay, interesting. Now, let's say let's say you're stopped, like a, a, a police officer pulls you over and says, I'm stopping you for unsafe driving, dangerous driving. Oh, you've got a dash cam. G- give me that dash cam right now. Like, do you have to turn it over right there on the spot? Yes, if you're arrested oh. for um, for that, uh, the police are entitled to seize that. And if you were to prevent them from doing that, you could end up charged with obstruction. Wow. Okay. And then typically what happens? Like Then they have to get a warrant, did you say, after that? Yes. So they can seize the dash cam, but the footage on the dash cam engages privacy interests, and they do have to get a warrant in order to get the footage off the dash cam. But those warrants are easy to get. All they have to prove is that they have reasonable grounds to believe that an offense has been committed and that the uh, evidence is likely to afford evidence of that offense. Okay. So what if you are a super safe driver and you're confident you're not going to be driving impaired, you're not going to be speeding, you're not going to be doing anything dangerous... So why should I be afraid as a driver to put a dash cam in my vehicle if I've got nothing to hide, I've got nothing to worry about, I know I'm not breaking the law, the only time I'm going to need this dash cam is if the other driver does something to me and I want to be able to prove I'm innocent. Does that not make it a good situation where you'd get one of these? Uh, well, I would challenge that by saying that nobody drives perfectly lawfully all the time. Um, I, I, I just don't believe that. Um, but also, um, you know, if, if you do feel confident that it's not going to be held against you, you know, mm-hmm. it's your it's obviously your right to get a dash cam, but you do so at your own risk. Right. How uh, Dash cams have become cheaper now, right? You can get them pretty cheap and the, and the quality has gone up, too. Oh, you can get an excellent quality dash cam with a long recording time for 30 to $50 these wow. days. Yeah, that's amazing. So would you therefore say, so when we talked about the sort of the, uh, the backfiring scenario there, how this thing, uh, your dash cam be turned against you, would you therefore say you should not get a dash cam? I don't have a dash cam, and none of the lawyers I know have a dash cam. Oh. Um, so, yes, uh, that would be my recommendation is not to get one. Okay, very interesting. Hey, Kyla, real quickly, later on the show today, I'll be speaking to the mayor of New Westminster, the idea they have there for income-tested traffic fines. So the higher your income, the higher your fine for speeding. So let's say you're some super rich guy, you're driving a Lamborghini, a super high income, you get pulled over for excessive speed, you're going to get walloped with a massive fine. Does that does that make sense to you? Like a, like a rich person should get a heavier fine to really drive the message home? 
You know, I, I do think that tying fines to income has a lot of merit to it, um, especially because that can also sort of alleviate a lot of the pressure of, of traffic fines on people who are of limited means, people, uh, single parents, things like that. Um, it, it evens the playing field. Um, I wow. am concerned, though, that rich people are often able to do all sorts of things to keep uh, their income low so that yeah. they don't pay a lot of taxes, even though having a lot of money available to them. Okay, we're going to be talking about that later on the show. Kyla, thank you for your thoughts on this today. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about the BC family now that fell in love with Mexico. In fact, they loved it so much they decided to move to Mexico. I got Christina Whiteley standing by. She is a writer for Mexico News Daily in Cabo where she lives with her family now. That's an English-language news site there in Mexico. She has documented her family's journey here on social media. You can find her everywhere, a Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Have a listen to one of her TikToks here. Here's Christina. I spent under $20 U.S. Uh, on groceries for the rest of the week. Gas is about $1.20 Canadian a litre. Our electricity bill is usually about $60 a month. Our cell phone bills are $13 each every single month. You can save on the little things. And if you need medical attention, yes, you can pay for it, but you can also buy coverage down here. Okay, so that is just a sample of some of the information she has on her TikTok and other social media platforms. Check in with her now, Christina Whiteley. Christina, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here today. Oh, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Now, I know you're back on the ground in B.C. today, right? Because you've just done a little trip home. Although, I guess I guess Mexico is your home now, right? This is your old home, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like we're on vacation from being on vacation. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this uh, this journey you made with your family here. When did you move? You used to live on Vancouver Island, right? That's right. We lived in North Cowichan. We had a little 10-acre uh, hobby farm in North Cowichan. Okay, well, that sounds pretty nice. Why did you decide to leave that and go to Mexico instead? Well, I think that you have a trip coming up to Mexico, and you know the sunshine that is down there, the nice weather. <laughs> and as much as we love Vancouver Island, I mean, it's gorgeous here. All of our family is here. Uh, you know, the, the gray, wet, cold kind of got to us. And, and you know, we, uh, we spent a lot of time in Mexico as a couple and really loved the culture and the community and the food and the people. And we thought, man, like, why don't we just go on a little family adventure. And so we left in October of 2021. Okay, and you're living in Cabo now, right? What's it like there? Oh my gosh. Well, I was just talking about the weather, 350 days of sunshine. It is absolutely beautiful. We have the breeze from the Pacific. Uh, you know, it's a tourist destination. So you have all these amenities and, and uh, a large expat community. So a lot of people speak English. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, it's just, it's a joy every day. It's a joy every day to get up. Okay, I think a lot of people think about this, especially if they love going down there on vacation. They think like, wow, you know, maybe we could live part of the year down there. We could save some money. So let me ask you about sort of the ups and downs or pros and cons of this. So now you have a young family, right? I think you got one, you have one daughter, right? Yeah, I have a daughter who's almost seven. We're actually up on the island for her birthday to go skiing. Oh, isn't, isn't that nice? Okay, seven years old, very young here to make this big move. Like, what was that transition like for her? You know, that's a great question. She she was in French immersion up here and she's she's a bright little kid and she's really social. And so we thought, why not 
you know, put her in school down there and she can learn Spanish, which she's all, she'll be fluent by the end of this year. Um, she's adapted so well. She's a happy kid, right? We get, I mean, life is better on the beach and she plays with the kids down there. It doesn't matter what language they speak. Uh, you know, there's, there's people from all over that live down there. So she, it's quite a diverse culture for her to grow up in and, and be able to be exposed to. Right. And is she learning to speak Spanish while she's there? Yeah, like her Spanish is yeah. better than my Spanish. She actually makes fun of me <laughs> because I can't I can't roll my R's. So she's okay. like, Mom, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> okay. How about now here's some of the other things I'm sure that goes through the minds of people when they hear this. What about health care? Now we heard that a little bit in the TikTok that we just played there on your TikTok. Health care. So I think this would be a big concern for people, the quality of the care, whether they the access to health care there. How has that worked out for you and your family there? Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting. And I know a lot of people worry about that. Now there is public and private healthcare down there. And, and, you know, I have to address this because not, um, not all the locals can afford uh, private medical, but we are grateful and and blessed enough that we can afford the private health care. Um, and, and even if you go down and spend money, uh, you know, I, we have family that's come down and done dental work and saved money, even including their trip. Uh, I've had friends come down for Lyme treatments, for stem cell, for uh, elective surgeries. Um, I've had dental work done down there, but, you know, it was really interesting because we in 2021 part of the reason that we left is because i had a couple of miscarriages that year and it was really it was really challenging because we were in the covid days where uh, doctors weren't seeing their patients i actually had lost my doctor in duncan and um mm. I, and i didn't have a replacement and so to go to navigate that and go through that and be at home by myself and not really have the support that i needed here for medical i knew um, that if I went down there, I could have support right away because I asked to see a specialist after going through these miscarriages and they said it'd be a six month wait for a phone appointment. And I said, well, if I go to Mexico, I can walk into an office, have an appointment that day and they'll go over my chart. I don't have to wait for months and months and months to have my results. Wow. Wow. That's really something. And how is that? And were you able to get the care that you wanted down there pretty quickly? But yeah, very yeah. quickly. It's really, it's really interesting. Even with dental work, you know, if you've got something coming up, they'll get you in in a day or two and and have it all oh, done. Right. Speaking of Christina Whiteley, Christina is a writer, mm -hmm. Mexico News Daily in Cabo. She moved her family from BC to Mexico, and she documents the journey on social media. You, we played a little bit of that TikTok and some of the costs down there, the cost differences. So you talked about food, you know, your electric bill. How much do you pay for your cell phone? Did you say? <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that shocks everybody, right? It's th it's thirteen dollars a month, and if you get the big package, it's twenty two dollars Canadian a month. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, yeah, that's really something. Now, what about um, what about your taxes down there? Like, do, do you live down there like a hundred uh, every day, or permanently down there, or do you spend just part of the year in Mexico, or? You know what? That's a great question. So we have a uh, temporary residency. If you come okay. as a tourist, you can only stay for 180 days and then you have to leave. But we apply right. for temporary residency. And so we don't have to leave. We get to stay there. And and my my suggestion when it comes to taxes is hire somebody that is good at international taxes, because that's, you know, that's something that I'm not willing to mess around with. And it, it's something that uh, is not my area of expertise. So I just I have hired out somebody that that's really good with international taxes. And, and we also have connections down in Mexico for an accountant as well. Okay. And how has that worked out? Like are the taxes, if you're living down there permanently, like you are, the taxes typically less? 
so much less. Like really? you would be mm. shocked at what the property taxes are. You know, I was looking up uh, this property for about 3.6 million and the property taxes for the year was 600 bucks. Wow. Okay. So here's another one, of course, that people think about, and I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, and that is crime, safety. Mm-hmm. We hear about the drug wars down there. We hear about the car- cartels, you know, and for people who go on, on vacay to Mexico, I don't think they're typically worried about that. If they're at a resort, if you're at a town like Cabo, like you said, my, my wife and I, my son, we're going to Mexico later, later this month too. We're looking forward to it and a little vacation, you know, not worried about crime, but what about living there? year-round. Do you worry about that? You know, it's it's the thing that people are concerned about the most, and you, you can get into trouble anywhere, you know. Um, it's really about being uh, a responsible human when you're out and about, and, and the thing is, Cabo is a safe place. It's a tourist destination. There are millions of people that fly in, millions of people that come through in cruise ships. Part of the reason that we're there is because we feel safe there, um, and, and we feel safe enough to raise our daughter there, and, and the irony is, you know, we flew in here into Victoria last summer. And, uh, and the day after we flew in, there was a bank robbery and six police officers were shot. And yes. so, <laughs> you, you know, like people worry about that. And, and my in-laws were just down visiting, uh, they're in their seventies and they said, you know, we feel safer. We get it. You guys, like we feel safer here than we feel in downtown Victoria or downtown Vancouver. And, and I, I have to back them up on that because I was in Vancouver this summer and I had to pull my daughter out of a restaurant twice because there was people outside with mental health that I was concerned about and I didn't want her exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Now let me ask you about sort of pros and cons. Like, do you have any, you know, you, your husband and your daughter, do you have any regrets about the move? Are there some things you miss about BC? Well, of course we miss our family. All of our family is here. And so that can be really, you know, really challenging. Um, But we, we don't have any regrets. Like I, you know, I'm still so grateful that, that we made this move and, uh, and I look at life in chapters, right? Like nothing is finite. We, this is our Mexico chapter. We could be there for two years. We could be there for 10 years. We could be there for the rest of our lives, but it's just, it's a chapter in our life that we are very grateful for. And I just think that people, um, you know, you need to, you need to make the next right move for you right now. You don't need a big grandiose Mm. vision of your life. It's just, what's, what's the next right move for you right now? What do you want to experience in this life? You only get to live once. So Yeah. yeah, we're grateful. We're very grateful. What about working down there? Because I know you do like you do like sort of online business consulting, right? That's sort of your profession. Yeah. So uh, we we were able to qualify for temporary residency because we could show economic solvency. So I do work online. I have an affiliate business that I do uh, social retail. And then I also run a business consulting uh, mastermind and I do VIP days in corporate uh, retreats down in Cabo. And, and that's just been a joy. And my husband actually just got into real estate down there. So oh. uh, he's, he's having a great time doing that. <laughs> oh, what's that? What's that like? What's the real estate market like down there? Well, it's not like it is here. It's actually on the climb. Like we, we bought a property down there and it's increased about $40,000 since we bought it. Uh, and we're, and we're building. So, uh, the, the market keeps climbing down there. There's a lot of people from Canada and the U S that are looking for investment properties that are looking to, you know, invest outside of the country and looking for vacation destinations. Like Airbnb is thriving down there and people come and do retreats. Like there's, it's a, it's a great destination for people to visit. So it's a great, uh, vacation, vacation property place. Okay. That's very interesting. How much is a home down there? We all know how much a a house or (laughs) even a condo costs in Metro Vancouver these days. How much does it cost for a home in Cabo? 
So uh, they have gone up and the average house price is 348,000 uh, US mm. dollars. Um, and right. that's for like a house, but like you can find, you know, we've been looking at some condos and you can find condos for 250, 260 for a, a bedroom or two bedroom condo, depending on your area and what amenities you want and all those things. Right. And, and I have to mention like Cabo is a very expensive place to live in Mexico. There are other places that you can live for much less, but we wanted to live there because it's a four, four and a half hour flight direct home. So like with our little one, we can come home and see family and they can come visit us and it's not too far for them to go. Okay, Christina, last question for you. You know, you're a young mom, you got a young family there, you've done this move, you sound very happy. Do you sort of see this as kind of a, like a permanent thing that you see yourself staying there for a long time, your daughter growing up there? Or do you think this is kind of like a temporary adventure? Maybe one at one point you come back to Canada. Oh gosh, my mom and my grandma are listening right now. <laughs> oh boy, okay. Make sure you answer, make sure you give the right answer. So, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't tell you how, how things are going to play out. You know, um, I really, uh, I really love my life there right now. We love our life there as a family. Um, you know, we, we would like to eventually split our time between here and there, although we're not ready to buy back in this market yet, but um, we would like to be able to come back and forth and spend time uh, in both places and, uh, and, and, you know, welcome family down to have great visits with us down there because now right. the time that we together is really intentional and it's really cool because you know we're going skiing this weekend with with Izzy's aunts and uncles and cousins and like we get to make these core memories now because we're intentional about it okay well it's been a pleasure to talk to you it's really interesting to watch you share your journey on social media i encourage the listeners to, to check out all your social media platforms and i wish you all the best going forward christina thank you very much for coming on to talk about it thank you so much for having me mike take care Okay, here we go now with income-tested traffic fines. Now, here's the idea on this. Let's say you are stopped for speeding, okay? Now, let's say it's excessive speeding, which is 40 clicks over the limit. The fine for that is $368 and three penalty points on your record, so your insurance goes up too. Now, if you're a low-income person or a middle is a working class middle income person that that's a pretty good dent in the wallet right there what if you're a millionaire though what if you're some playboy driving a expensive sports car you can get 368 dollars puts a dent in that guy's wallet i doubt it that's like pocket change for that guy isn't it so here's the idea you base the fine on the income so the higher your income the higher your fine I got New Westminster Patrick jo New Westminster Mayor Patrick Johnson standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this now. Some other countries do this. They base the fine on the income, including in Finland. Now, check this out. The Finnish hockey player, the NHL star, making millions in the NHL. He gets rung up for speeding back home in Finland. They've got the income-tested fine. Man, oh, man, did this guy get a penalty. Have a listen names on the Buffalo Sabres had to pay a pretty hefty fine for speeding in his home country. A news outlet in Finland reports defenseman Rasmus Ristolainen was caught driving 50 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone and because Finland hands out fines based on income that got him a $135,000 fine. $135,000 fine for speeding. 
Why was it so much? Well, it's because he makes so much in the NHL. He signed a contract for $32 million to play in the NHL. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Patrick Johnson, the mayor of New Westminster. Uh, mayor Johnson, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for doing it. Now, this came up for a vote at New West Council. Tell me your position on it here. Yeah, well, we um, in New Westminster, we're committed to making roads safer for all users, and enforcement is part of that. But we've also been bringing equity into the ways we approach engineering and uh, and education around road safety. And we would hope to also bring that kind of equity to the enforcement side. So this is a motion at our council to um, ask the UBCM membership to vote on advocating for this at the province. Okay, so this, yeah, this would require the provincial government to change the law, I guess, right? Absolutely, yeah. The, the uh, okay. fines, are, fines are determined by the provincial government, and so I... Through this motion, we are going to ask the UBCM membership to ask the province to look at a system like this. Okay, why do you like this idea? Why do you think it would be a good way to go? Well, as I said, we're committed to making roads safer in in New Westminster. Um, And this is an approach that's used in jurisdictions with much safer roads than ours, frankly. Um, And enforcement is only sort of one part of the equation, but um, it is a part where an equity lens is important. Um, well, one of the knockoff effects of the COVID pandemic is actually the pedestrian deaths and injuries are going up in urban areas after decades of roads becoming safer. Um, so they're now becoming more dangerous. And it's also interesting that people of lower income and marginalized people are disproportionately the victims of these types of incidents. So uh, as a city applies our equity lenses to our approaches, we would like the province to do the same. Okay, how would this work in practical purposes here now like let's say a police officer pulls over a guy charges him with writes him up a ticket for speeding how is that police officer supposed to know the guy's income is he supposed to have a look up the guy's income on a revenue canada site in his car in his police car or something how do you how do you how do you do that the police do not decide the fines that you receive at the roadside what the police do at the roadside is they determine what the offense is that you've broken under the motor vehicle act the right. fine itself is determined by the violation ticket and fines regulation, a provincial regulation. So the motion okay. of the UBCN is asking the province to look at that regulation and make the changes there. So at the, t- at the door, when the police officer hands you a ticket, you will be told what your violation is, and uh, you will find out what the fine is, I guess, when, the, when you're charged. Oh, man. Yeah, and if you're a high-income driver, you could be in for a rude, a rude surprise here. Like, do you think that... Like, let's say someone is a super wealthy guy, like some rich guy driving a Ferrari or something. Like, if you hand that guy a $300 speeding ticket, you know, is your concern here about the deterrent value of that fine? Like, if someone is super rich and $300 is nothing to them, maybe it, it doesn't change their behavior, right? So if you, if you whack them harder, maybe that gets their attention more and they stop speeding. Would you, would you say that's, that's part of it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to create regulation based on the extreme anecdote, right? But um, but the argument itself, I think, is a little bit telling. I mean, we're talking about bringing equity to what is an inequitable system. And that makes some people really uncomfortable, especially those who are accustomed to a privilege. So hmm. this is all about the equity for users of public space. Roads are public spaces. And jurisdictions around the world have introduced this. This model for traffic fines, um, Finland, Sweden, UK, Switzerland, countries in Latin America, and the approach wow. is really popular in those jurisdictions. And maybe, maybe the anecdotal story of the multi-millionaire hockey player 
uh, getting a serious fine leads to a better conversation about road safety and about the responsibility for being to, for being safe on the roads. Okay. So I don't, I'm not sure the money we make from that hockey player is as powerful in an education tool as having that conversation. Okay, that's interesting. Speaking to New Westminster Mayor Patrick Johnston about income-tested traffic fines. Now, we've talked about this issue on a, on a previous show. Let me play a clip, a clip here for you, Patrick. This is Grant Gottkachru. He is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic accidents. And he doesn't think this is a very good idea. And you'll hear him explain why here, then I'll get your thoughts. Grant Gottkachru, have a listen. Well, the police aren't going to know roadside what your income is unless suddenly they have access to their computers to your annual tax return from the year before. I mean, it's just it's just so ludicrous on so many levels. It's like, okay, so you drive an expensive car, that means you're rich. You know, okay, so then the rich folks will now drive uh, cheaper cars. Okay, I think at the point he was making there, we talked, we talked earlier about whose responsibility it would to check the income level, and it wouldn't be the police officer at the, at the pulling the guy over. But, yeah, I'm surprised that a person who works in that in that living actually thinks the police determine the fines at the street side. But that's fine. I'll, we'll okay, let that go. okay, okay. But you know, I thought it was interesting his point about a cheaper looking car too, because I've heard this that if this starts being a an income tested fine, would the police be more likely to pull over? a higher end car. So if you see some old old beat up old car driving by, the police officer would be less likely to ticket that person. They want to go after the someone with the high end beamer or Mercedes. You think uh, that's that pres- true? That presumes that the police are putting the fines in their own pockets and that's not the way it works. The police are not motivated, I think, by the amount of money they receive in fines. They are motivated by the enforcement of the law. And the money that they receive at the fines doesn't go to the police officer. It goes to the provincial government, and uh, that police officer never sees that money again. So I don't see that motivation for police officers. What about, what about the municipality? Like if, if they brought in this system and someone in New Westminster got hit with a huge honking fine because they're a rich person, does the city of New, West, New Westminster get a, a share of that ticket revenue or no? So again, no, the, uh, local okay. governments, the police for local governments do not, the money that they issue as fines does not come directly back to that local government. There is a fund of fine revenue that's collected province-wide that is redistributed to cities based on population, but it's okay. not based on the number of fines uh, collected from that community. Uh, okay, okay, let me play another clip here for you. Former traffic sure. cop Grant Gottgedrew here. Here he is making another point about why he doesn't like this idea. Then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. It's the points that act as a deterrent in BC because the more points you get, your, your premiums are, and then you lose your license, and that's how it works. And as for his argument that, oh, well, you know, lower-income people, that fine is going to hit them harder. Okay, right. well, there's an, easy, there's an easy fix to that. Don't break the law. Okay, so he says if you don't want to... <laughs> You don't want to get hurt with a traffic fine. You shouldn't speed, I guess. But he also talked about the penalty point system there. So for the example we've used on excessive speeding, if you get stopped for excessive speed, 40 clicks over the limit, you're getting three points on three penalty points on your record and your, your ICBC premiums go up as a result. Is that not an adequate deterrent now already? Yeah, there's some road safety. There's about some road safety fines that also come along with impacts on your insurance rates. And there's some that don't. So again, um, it's 
it's really easy to get into the complicated details of how something this would roll out. Um, uh, but I, I think that the question here is to start the conversation with the province about how we can make this system more equitable. We're not reinventing the wheel here, right? This is an approach used in many other jurisdictions. And um, even though we can, again, find different complications in it, the conversation yeah. here isn't to start this tomorrow. The conversation is to ask the province to talk about how we can bring something like this out. Okay, so where does this go now? This passed uh, in a vote at New West Council, so it now yeah. goes to, where does it go next? It will go to the Lower Mainland Local Government Association, and those members may or may not vote to take that to the UBCM. And when we take resolutions to the UBCM in September, um, it's essentially that. The local governments around the British Columbia come to a meeting, and we vote on a series of resolutions, which are essentially... Advocate, advocating for the provincial government to make regulatory changes. So that will be the next step. Okay, it's a very interesting issue. We're going to follow it. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Hey, thank you for your time, Mike. Thanks. Okay, speaking of money, now we're going to talk about your money. And does the government waste a lot of your money? It's our spotlight here on government waste. And you know how every day I tell you to send me an email if you got any ideas for this show. Thank you to Larry, one of our uh, loyal listeners here who suggested this focus, and I think it's a good one. Government waste of your money. How often do you see that happening? Got Carson Binda, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Carson. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on today. Okay, we probably do a whole show on this, but we're just focused on a few examples here. So let's start with, okay, this is the one that really drove me up the wall, and this is the Royal BC Museum. Now, the original announcement here last year, they were going to tear the museum down, start all over, build a brand new museum, move a lot of the other, the precious treasures there off-site into another storage facility in Greater Victoria. Billion dollars. I mean, this was this was crazy, I thought. And the backlash from taxpayers was unreal. Now, let's go back in time here. Let's listen to then-Premier John Horgan. Now, here he is defending the original museum project before he backed down on it. Here's John Horgan. Let's have a listen. I believe that protecting the collective assets of all of the people who have been in British Columbia since time immemorial right up to today is money that is well spent to protect and preserve our collective history. The Royal BC Museum brought forward their case. We spent the past five years doing our due diligence, finding the best way forward. We believe we've arrived at that point, putting in place a plan that we believe is achievable to protect our collective history. Yeah, yeah. until until the public got their back up, and then he folded faster than Superman on laundry day. Okay, Carson, give me your take here on this museum debacle. I mean, there's still a ton of money down the drain here in this thing, wasn't there? Yeah, the museum boondoggle is a disaster for taxpayers day one. Okay, you're, bra- you're, breaking up, you're breaking up real, real bad here on your cell phone. If you can, maybe you can try step, step into a, closer to a window or something here. We can maybe get Absolutely. a bit cleaner. Okay, try again. Go ahead. Let me get somewhere with a little bit better signal for you. Okay. All right, go so ahead. So the museum, the museum has been a boondoggle since day one. I mean, the initial plan to, to tear it down and spend a billion dollars rebuilding the whole Royal BC Museum was a slap in the face to taxpayers that nobody can afford. 
And there was just overwhelming opposition to that proposal by Premier Horton, so much so that he had to back down. But that doesn't mean government's done wasting our money on this museum. I mean, the research building that you that you mentioned down in Colwood, it was initially pegged at $177 million, but government's already, they're already at $270 million. That means it's about $100 million over budget. And Mike, shovels haven't even broken ground yet. Yeah, this is the thing I find I find weird. Now, this is a facility that the government is building in, in Colwood, which happens to be in John Horgan's riding uh, near Victoria, and it will be a storage and research facility for muse- part of the museum archives there and, and the stuff they have there. How the heck does something go that badly over budget and just basically, it doesn't seem like very much time's gone by here. It goes $100 million over budget, and basically it's just a field out there. I mean, there's nothing there right now. It's just an empty field. Yeah, How does that shocking. happen? It's shocking that government is able to waste $100 million over their own estimates before they even start building the thing. But, you know, the law of gravity says that if you throw something, it's going to fall. The law of government says that if you want to waste money, you just add bureaucrats to the mix. So this has been the perfect example of government just wasting our money and not actually showing any, any tangible results there yet. I mean, like you said, it's literally still an empty field. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the, the existing museum. And one of the things that they did there was they basically shuttered up a, a big portion of the museum, including the, the third floor which contained some exhibits, notably the, the Old Town, as it was known, which was kind of a, a reconstruction of, a, of an old sort of turn-of-the-century town. And the explanation at the time was they wanted to update the exhibits, make them more inclusive, include more representation of Indigenous and First Nations experience in B.C., decolonize the museum. So this is why they, they shut it down. So it was shut down for over a year, and then they announced they're going to reopen it after all, and the, the old town exhibit is still there. Now, mm-hmm. like, what is the point? Like, how do they end up shutting this thing down for a year and then just say, well, actually, let's reopen it? Let's have a listen to Alicia Dubois here as the CEO of the Royal BC Museum, and here's the explanation. We actually could not take down Old Town. Um, it's so full of asbestos behind the scenes. We do regular air testing. Okay, so they said they went in there, they were, I guess the original plan was to tear it all out, and then they found, oh, there's a lot of asbestos in here, maybe we better leave it alone. Carson, your thoughts? Well, you'd think government, before pledging a billion dollars to tear the museum down, would do those basic uh, sort of pre-works to determine the feasibility of actually renovating the old town. Um, We didn't see that from government. We saw them jump in with big promises, big pledges, without doing any of the background work that should have been done beforehand. So them shuttering the third floor of the museum, uh, saying they're going to tear it down, saying they're going to decolonize it, only to then flip-flop and say it's no longer possible because of the asbestos? It's ridiculous. Government should have figured out those fine details before they ever even made this plan public. And what about the cost of that? Like, we're talking, this is public money here, this is a public asset, this is a major tourist attraction in Victoria that was shut down for a year. I mean, obviously they lose foregone at, at revenue from admissions from people who did not go there because it was closed for a year. 
You know, at one point they dropped the they dropped the admission price to go into the museum because most of it had been shuttered up. You know, this is you know the lost tourism opportunities there. So this is like that's a loss of money. That that's hurting taxpayers too, is it not? It is, and it's also hurting the businesses around the museum. I mean, all the restaurants and hotels uh, in Victoria's harbour front that depend on tourists coming to see the <clears throat> gems of West Coast culture, like the Royal BC Museum. Well, they're getting shafted, too, uh, when those folks just don't come to see the shuttered museum anymore. Yeah. Okay, let's listen to, okay, partisan advertising. I mean, this is one that I've been writing about for decades, literally, in B.C., because every party seems to do it when they get into power. When they're in opposition, they complain about it. But here's a beautiful example. Have a listen to this ad. Listeners may have heard this ad a lot. This is your tax money at work. Have a listen. Brought to you by BC NDP MLAs. In the first 100 days in office, BC's new Premier David Eby is taking real action. Lots of it. Action to get more homes built and taking on real estate speculators. Action to improve health care with more doctors and nurses for everyone who needs care, not just the wealthy. Stopping rate hikes for car insurance and putting more money back in your pocket with BC affordability credits. David Eby, 100 days of putting people first. And he's just getting started. A message from your BC NDP MLAs. When I first heard that ad, I thought, because they were so prominently mentioning the name of the party, NDP, there, I thought, okay, this is this has got to be an NDP ad. This can't be a taxpayer-financed ad. This must have been paid for by the party. But when I checked into it, Carson, no. This is taxpayers' money paid for that ad. What do you think? That's a slap in the face to taxpayers, to be quite honest with you, Mike. Look, folks are having a hard time putting food on their tables right now. All across B.C., this year saw record-breaking demand at food banks. I mean, studies are saying that one in five Canadians literally can't afford to eat three square meals a day right now. Every single day I get phone calls, I get emails from families in B.C. worrying about how they're going to afford to make rent or buy enough groceries or gas to get their kids to school in the morning. EB needs to be putting money back in those people's pockets, not skimming off their paychecks to score cheap political points. I mean, politicians are supposed to use their caucus funds to represent their communities. Instead, he's using taxpayer dollars to uh, to go on a mudslinging rampage. It's disgusting right now. Talking about government waste with my guest, Carson Binda. Just before we go to your phone calls here, Carson, so let's give another example here. And let's look at the big severance bill here for top officials in the B.C. government who were let go when David Eby became the new premier and the most famous example here was they fired the former deputy minister to john horgan the former premier so premier david eby could hire his own deputy minister the severance package the severance payout for the former deputy five hundred and ninety one thousand dollars in severance and then they turn around and give her another job as the chair of bc hydro so how the heck do you get a near $600,000 severance, and then get a new job on top of it. Your thoughts? Yeah, so severance payments should be paid out when people are going to be out of work for a while, when they're laid off unexpectedly. When the premier resigns and his number one aide is given $600,000 before immediately being hired back by the, by the public service, well, that really reeks of cronyism. It reeks of uh, friends of the current government getting rewarded with huge payouts from the taxpayers and plum uh, roles in the public service afterwards. 
And when taxpayers are struggling to make ends meet, there's really no no excuse for this kind of huge waste and rewarding political insiders. So they need to what reform the system for these type of severance payouts. Absolutely. There is no reason why someone should get uh, $600,000 from the taxpayer in severance, only to then immediately be rehired by the taxpayer. Okay. Let's go to the phone calls. Rick and Kamloops. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Oh, hello there. There's just so much disgusting waste, but to me, one of the biggest wastes is paying out these pensions to people in the government that only have to work for six or eight years or whatever the allocation is and that on the back of all the taxpayers till they pass away and it, it's all obligated money that cannot be done so what they should do is change it to an RSP system for every dollar you put in we the taxpayer can match that dollar or a little bit less and then they can walk away uh, I'm just so disgusted with all governments okay. right now Okay, let's talk about the seven. Okay, for MLAs, Carson, and the minimum, the minimum period you need to serve as an MLA is six years in order to qualify for a pension, right? So you need to win. You basically need to win two elections in order to qualify for a pension, correct? Yeah, for the most part, uh, you need to win two elections. You know, there's some unusual cases where there's snap elections, so you might need to win three. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you work six years, you put six years of your life into a job, and suddenly you have a payout for the rest of your life? I mean, find me any other career. Find me a job in the private sector that gives you those kind of plum benefits. Okay, well, I think there should be a reasonable pension, though, for MLAs, though, don't you think? Sure, MLAs yeah. should get a reasonable pension. They should, uh, they should be rewarded for the service they've done for their communities. Yeah. But not at these, not when they're given hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and then on top of that, are on the hook for uh, taxpayer-funded pensions for the rest of their lives. So, are, so are you saying life? that are you saying that you should be required to serve longer than six years before you qualify? I think what we need to see is MLAs using some of their own money to pay into pension plans, like our caller suggested. I mean, normal Canadians, their pension is skimmed off their paycheck. It goes into an an RRSP, um, and they have to make the decisions to finance the rest of their lives, to pay for their golden years. Too many of these MLAs are making life harder for folks to save and then not having to face the same struggles, the same worries that ordinary taxpayers do, because for the rest of their lives, they're subsidized by the taxpayer pocketbook. Squeeze in another call. Kevin in Kamloops. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. Yeah, just uh, a couple of years ago, the city of Vancouver was bankrupt, and I don't believe that. I mean, the police cars, they turn off the gas. I mean, keep it going. I understand the winter, but I mean, someone turn it off. I mean, help us out. Then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, these guys are on, like, uh, you're right, like, uh, you know, once you work at the police or something, you can, you know, get a, you know, you get WCB for life and then you can have another job or something. I don't know how that works. But yeah. And oh, again, okay. That, okay. Thank, thank no, no. But again, what happened to yeah. Kingsway Street the other day? What happened to the police with the bank? You know, thing. And the other day, a guy was like shot in the stomach. He didn't do nothing. So, I mean, like that's, I mean, someone's going to pay for that. No, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I get it back. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.